0: Uh, years ago, uh, Joanna and I were talking about this this week, but years ago, she went to a conference, my wife, Joanna, uh, a medical conference where it was, um, speakers talking about different things. I think it had to do with, um, uh, kids, mental health and that sort of thing. But she said one of the speakers, she remembered talking about how stood up and started with, uh, if you could go back to college, how many, you know, big room full of people, how many of you would go back to college and kind of relive those years if we could. And she said like, you know maybe 15% of the room was like yeah that that would be good and she said well how many of you if you go could go back to high school and relive those years when she said some of the hands went down but there were still some and then finally said if you could go back to middle school and relive those years. And basically every hand went down. There wasn't a single one up when they asked about middle school. And there was, the, the speaker did it purposely and kind of went back and started to talk about why middle school is so hard. And some of the things that you, you well know, if you, you've been through middle school, if you've been through that age, it's difficult partly because uh, just the changes you're going through in your body and what's happening. And you're, you're kind of growing, uh, you're going through... Um, all of this hormonal changes and what's happening you suddenly have a uh, greater self-awareness you're you're more worried about what people think of you and then you put put those kids together with a whole bunch of other kids that are thinking the same way and everybody thinks everybody's looking at me and suddenly there's all those kind of insecurities that come up and come to the surface and so then the defense mechanisms that start to uh, kick in and it's so much about comparisons and who you're friends with and what this looks like and all those kind of things. And it's like, it's a difficult season really in a whole lot of ways. So much so that those years and what people said to you in those years can stick with you for a long time. Sometimes your whole life. You can remember what people said to you or, or some little cutting mark, remark they made or the things that are there. And it's a difficult season in life for those reasons or it can be a difficult season for those for those reasons. But the truth is, as we grow up and as we get older, all those things don't just go away, right? They're they're still there. Those memories and those things, we still have insecurities. Hopefully, as we grow older, we start to see things from kind of a fuller picture. And we're not right in the middle of that age where there's so much changes, but we still struggle with that. Instead of it being the, the silly things that it was in middle school... And I'm, I'm well aware of them right now. I have one that just finished middle school and one that's just going into middle school, right? So it's in my house all the time. It's no, you know, when you're a kid, it's like what sneakers you have and, you know, whatever your hair looks like and all these kind of things. And then you get older and it changes, but they're still there. It's still comparisons that we hold on to in a lot of ways. It maybe shifts from your sneakers to the car you drive or the house you live in or the job you have or the way people look at all sorts of things. And we all deal with that in different ways. We all deal with insecurities. We all deal with comparisons and those different things that that come in life. And I think that's true for all of us. If we can think back, and it may still be true for you today, you may still be struggling with some of those things. But I want us to think about Jesus today as we continue to walk our way through the Gospels and something it tells us in the book of Hebrews. It says, Jesus has been tempted in every way that we are yet without sin that jesus the god of the universe has come down and walked among us and he deals with all of the things and he did deal with and he knows intimately everything that you deal with everything that you go through all the insecurities and the struggles and all of that and i love this passage today because we're going to walk through and see jesus in the setting in a house at a party and things that are going on and all of these things are at play All of these comparisons and trying to put people down and all this. And Jesus walks right into the middle of it and he shows us perfectly how to operate in that. And that is so cool to me when I think about that when I struggle with those in my own mind, I struggle with comparisons and and thinking about that and wrestling with those that Jesus went through that as well. And he knows exactly what we're dealing with. And so we're going to look at this passage today as we continue to walk through Jesus's life chronologically. And we're going to see him kind of come into this this scenario. And there's a lot happening under the surface that I want us to look at. As we flesh it out and kind of look at culturally what was going on, I think you're going to see how similar it is to some of the things that we deal with today. And as we do, I want us to look at it this way. First, there's a problem here that we're going to see with this main guy, Simon, that he comes into contact with. He's a Pharisee one of the religious leaders of the day. And there's a problem that's going on in his heart. And it's a problem that we all struggle with. And then secondly, we're going to see how Jesus exposes the heart underneath. But then lastly, we're going to see how he shows us that we can be freed of it in him. And so the problem that's there, the way Jesus exposes it, and then how he frees us. So let's just start with the problem that we all struggle with that happens as we look closely at this this dinner, this party that's going on. So if you'll start with me, in Luke chapter 7, verse 36, it says, one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Now we're going to find out in a minute, the Pharisee's name is Simon and it's his party and his house. Pharisees were the religious leaders of the day that kind of had power and control, even though they didn't have it in the sense of being uh, governmental authority, but they were kind of who people looked up to as far as religious affairs go. And Simon is one of these Pharisees. And what it says here is that he comes in, Jesus comes into his house and he reclines at the table and it seems like you read that verse and you go, yeah, okay. So Jesus went over to his house for dinner, sits down, big deal. But there's a lot going on here that maybe if you don't know the social context and what's happening that you might easily miss stuff that when Luke, the, the writer of the gospel here wrote this in the first century, people would have known exactly what he meant, even just from that first verse. And so if you look at that first verse, it says he came in and sat down on a big deal. But what's not said is all the social graces that went with a party like this. And so at this time, when a guy like uh, Simon, the Pharisee, has a party and he invites Jesus to come as kind of an honored guest and be at my party and recline at this table. What would often happen at these community events is the, the home would be opened up and people could kind of come and go. And it was a big to do. And so Simon would open the gates to his house and people would come in and people from the community would be coming and going. Maybe you've been to a party like a, in your neighborhood or for work or something where they say, Hey, we're having a party and it's from six to 10. You can drop by whenever you want and people come in and out. And if you've ever done that, maybe like a Christmas party and people are coming and going and that's kind of what was happening here. They would throw open the gates and the community would be coming in and it'd be this great big event. But when a special guest came, like Jesus was in this case, remember right now we're in the middle of Jesus's ministry. His popularity is at an all-time high. Everywhere he goes, there's crowds of people following him. And Simon invites him to his house. And when a special guest came to your house and they come in, what you would do is you would kind of stop everything and be like, look who's here. It's Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth. And you would offer to wash their feet right they lived in a society where you wore sandals and walked on dirt roads and so you'd offer to wash their feet you would greet them with a holy kiss you would announce them you might anoint their head with oil all these kind of things and you make a big to do it's kind of like what we would think of uh the red carpet when you watch a uh a award show right the big movie stars come in and everybody goes oh wait look who it is and they make a great big deal of them and they announce them that's kind of what happened But what it says here is Jesus came into Simon's house and he walked right in and none of that happened and he goes and reclines at the table and that's it. And you go, okay, big deal. So he came in and he sat down and what's the big deal? I think the big deal here is this is on purpose. This is not just an oversight. This is Simon kind of sticking it to Jesus. You're the hot new teacher that everybody's following and all this talk about you maybe being the Messiah and I'm a Pharisee and I'll put you in your place. And so he ignores Jesus and he has him come in and sit down and kinda, kinda forgets him. It's really like, if you think about it, it's a lot like middle school. Right? Try to put somebody down, oh, I'll just ignore him. Right? I, I remember being in middle school and going to sit down at the lunch table and a guy going, no, 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 my best friend sits here. You can sit over there. Right? You remember those days? Those kind of things? Like, you go, oh man. right? That's kind of what was happening here. That petty, that ridiculousness, but that's what Simon's doing. He's kind of trying to put Jesus in his place, but Jesus comes in and takes his seat and doesn't make a big deal. He's not worried about it. In fact, it makes me think of something that John already said in John's gospel that we looked at way back at the beginning in John chapter two, when it says Jesus needs no one to bear witness about who he is. He knows what's in every man. He walks in the midst of that. He is God in the flesh and he knows who he is. He's completely secure in the father's love and he doesn't need that and he just sits down, right? But that's the first part, right? So that's what's going on, kind of background. But then look at the next verse, verse 37. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner. And when she had learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house brought an alabaster flask of ointment and standing behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. And so there's a lot going on in that as well. You probably can read that and read a couple of times, think about what's going on here and probably get to what's happening. It's not that cryptic what Luke is saying. He says here that she was a woman of the city who was a sinner and she has this alabaster flask of ointment with her. And what he's saying and what his audience would have known, Luke's audience would have known, and anyone at that time looking at that woman would have known, is that this lady is a prostitute. That's who she is. And she comes in, and that's the marks of her trade, having that kind of ointment with her and and the things that they knew. Her reputation preceded her. And she comes into this party, which it wouldn't have been that uh, strange for her to come into a party like this although it is somewhat in this case because the party is at a Pharisee's house, one of the religious leaders of the day. If it was at somebody's house, normally this woman would come in and maybe be trying to get some business. The party's happening. I'm going to go in there and see if I can't get some clients. That would be scandalous to do that in a Pharisee's house. It would be even kind of scandalous that she came in to begin with. But she does and she comes in and it tells us that she came in because she knew that Jesus was there. Right? It says that in the... Verse 38, that she comes in because she knows that Jesus is there. And so when this happens, Simon sees an opportunity. He kind of looks at this and goes, it's another way to kind of be cutting towards Jesus. Now it says in verse 39, now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him for she is a sinner. Now it says, he says to himself, I don't know if he said that like under his breath I don't know if he said that to the few people sitting around him like, hey, you see, get a load of this guy. If he knew who she was, I'm not exactly sure how he says it, but it's telling us what the heart condition is there anyway, whether he said it out loud or not. But it goes perfectly with his plan to kind of show Jesus up. Look at this guy, right? He ignores him. He doesn't announce him. Now he's saying in his own heart, I can't believe that he's letting this woman come and spend time there and and he's letting her touch his feet. And so you see this here that he's, he's really operating in comparisons, is he not? He's putting Jesus down. He's looking at what he's doing. He's judging what he's doing. Oh, if he knew what kind of woman this is. And he starts to operate in those comparisons. And that's what Simon's doing. And it's the problem that we often have. It's not just Simon. We all do this. It's so easy to look at someone and assume some things and immediately feel superior or inferior. It's so easy for us to slip into that. It's a problem that Simon has here, but it's a problem that I have. My guess is it's a problem that you have at different times and how easy it is to slip into that. We see this misunderstanding all the time. See, we see this misunderstanding all the time in the church, sadly. I've had different times where I've heard people say to me, Like, uh, I I vividly remember when I very first started at this church, a lady came up to me and she said, you talk a lot about sharing our faith, people who aren't here, and those. And she said, why can't we just be about the people who are here? Why do we do that? Why do we care about those people out there? (laughs) And I bit my tongue really hard. I smiled. I said, do you know Jesus? Let's look at the Gospels together. Let's look at who Jesus spent time with. And where he went. And it's so easy for us to slip into those things and kind of draw lines of, oh, I can't spend time with that person. And I can't spend time with that person. But Jesus didn't do that. I just want to ask you a question. As Simon says that, whether he says it out loud or he's just thinking it and Jesus knows what he's thinking. Does Jesus know who this woman is? Absolutely. He knows exactly who she is. He knows exactly where she's been. He doesn't stop her. He doesn't push her away. He allows her to be there and so then Jesus begins to expose the heart that's underneath that problem of comparisons which we all struggle with and so look at what he says verse 40 Jesus answering said to Simon I have something to say to you and he answered say it teacher and he then begins to tell this story and in doing so Jesus is graciously going to call out the heart condition that's underneath our comparisons. But look at what he says, a certain money lender who had two debtors, one one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. By the way, a denarii is a, a day's wage. So one owed two years of salary, one owed two months of salary. They both had a big debt. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both of them. But which of them will love him more? And Simon answered, I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said, you have judged rightly. And then he begins to turn to the woman and say, look at the way that she's received me versus the way that you have received me. And he makes that comparison. And so I want you to think about what he's doing with this story and what he's saying. He's really revealing the heart of all of us when we fall into comparisons. when we start to operate in those ways, right? He starts to, to point out what's underneath that. But I want you to look closely at the way he tells the story. Obviously in his story, if you follow it, One is the woman and one is Simon, right? The woman with the larger debt, uh, culturally, prostitute, has done all sorts of things. Simon is a religious leader and upstanding guy. And so smaller debt versus bigger debt. But here's the thing that I want you to see as he tells the story. Who has a debt that they cannot pay? It's not your question. It's both, right? That's what it says there. He says, look, there was one who had a debt of 500 denarii and the other of 50, but when they could not pay, neither one of them could pay their debt. And so Jesus starts to bring out and draw underneath the heart of comparison that comes out when we forget who we are, when we forget that we desperately need God's grace in our life. And that's exactly what was happening with Simon." Right, He had drawn lines that this lady was the worst of the sinners and if Jesus knew that, he'd have nothing to do with her and he'd be done with her. But what he was forgetting is that he too needed Jesus' grace. That he too needed the grace of God in his own life. And that's exactly what starts to happen when we start to make comparisons like that. When we start to draw lines and we start to look down on people, we're forgetting who we are and what God has done for us in our own lives. And it's so easy to slip into that sort of comparison. And so I want you just to think about that for just a second. When we start to slip in like that, and maybe you've done that. Maybe at times you've said that. You said, well, I'm a sinner and I'm saved by grace and it's all God, but I would never do that. Have you ever said that? You ever thought that way? You Start to kind of operate in those comparisons. And when we do that, we've forgotten our own sinfulness, our own wickedness. We've forgotten how God is the one who is saving us from ourselves by his grace. And so I want you just to think about this for just a second. The heart that's underneath us, underneath comparisons, which we all do, and we all slip into at different times. And so how do we guard against that? Why does that happen? And the first thing I would say to you is that it's gospel amnesia. As a Christian, we've forgotten the gospel. We've literally forgotten the good news of what God has done for us and who we are. Right? The story here where he says there's a woman, uh, the, the two people, need, both of them have a debt they could never repay. And the reality is that's every single one of us in this room. Every one of us has a debt before a holy, righteous, perfect God that we could never, ever attain righteousness on our own. Every single one of us. That is true of all of us. Here he talks about a debt that's 500 denarii versus 50 denarii. And you go, well, the story is partly like this guy doesn't have as much as she does. But the truth of the scripture and what God tells us is that in our sin, we have been separated from God because he is perfect and holy and righteous. And none of us can attain that. Right? 50 versus 500. It doesn't matter because neither one of them could repay it. And we like to put it into categories of this is where we draw the line. And so we do this at different times. We take certain sins and we act like they're socially acceptable. Or we become comfortable with them in our culture. Certain things aren't that bad, but those over there are the really bad ones. Again, I'll give you an example from our church, because this plagues all of us at different times. When I first started here, I've been here for 12 years, about a year and a half into it, a friend of ours that we were supporting their ministry, the Jericho House, came to me and said, I want the Jericho House guys, if you don't know what the Jericho House is, year-long drug and alcohol rehabilitation center for men. They stay for a year. He said, I want all the guys that are in the program to come to your church and worship with you and be part of it. And I went, yes, let's do that. And they did. And they started to come. And the families came with them. Some of our families here in our church came from those relationships. Some of the people in the church, some of my favorite people that I've ever met came through that program. And I had people come up to me and say, what are you doing to our good church? And I went, what? (laughs) What? you're going to ruin our good church. One guy came to me and he said, no, 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 we need to be recruiting good families. And I said, who's good? (laughs) What do you mean? Right? What does Jesus say when the guy comes up to him and says, good teacher? He says, why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. And what had happened in the hearts of some of those people was they had drawn a line that there were certain sins that were, were too bad. Addiction was one of those things. And we can't do that. That might be too scary or that might be too messy. And we've forgotten who we are when that happens. And we do that at different times. We put certain sins in certain categories and we act like, oh, that, that over there is the one that God can't forgive. And that's not true. That's, that's a lie. There's nothing that God cannot overcome in His grace. It doesn't mean that it's not sin and we shouldn't call that out. It doesn't mean that we don't call people to repentance. We do, but God is the one who is bigger than all of that. And when we start to miss that and we start to operate in those ways, we've distorted the gospel. We've forgotten the gospel. We have gospel amnesia. We've forgotten what God has saved us from. And my sin may look different in the way it manifests in my life than addiction, but that doesn't mean the heart of those sins are not the same. And we all need to be reminded of that. And when we forget that, that's when comparisons come. The gospel amnesia. We forget who we are and what God has saved us from. And so the first thing I want you just to think about, to guard your heart against is don't forget the truth of the gospel of who you are. But then the second thing I would say, and these go hand in hand, they go right together, is when we distort the idea of grace. Grace is God doing for us what we could never ever do for ourselves. But what we like to do is we like to think and define grace. It's kind of like God making up the difference, right? Like I'm a pretty good person and I made it like 70% of the way and God filled in the last 30%. That's kind of the way we think of it, right? He, he made up the shortfall, but I was pretty good. He didn't have to work that hard to save me or he didn't have to work as hard as that person over there. And that's a lie. Anything good in your life, Anything that is worthy, anything that will stand when you stand before God on the last day is because of the grace of God in your life. That's it. There's nothing else. And so, you know what would happen and what God showed me even in all those years with the Jericho house. I would go sit and I would listen to these guys' story at different times. And I would hear the things that happened in their childhood and in their life and the things that brought them to that place. And I would sit there and I would weep and I would go... I don't know that I'd be any different if that's what I grew up in. God graciously spared me to bring me to this place, where I, And the only reason that I could see was God's grace in my life that ever got us there. And God would show you that and remind you of that. And when we forget that and we distort grace to be partly what God does and partly what I do rather than it all being what God does, that's what leads us to comparisons, that's what leads us to looking down on other people. That's what leads us to say, "Well, we need good people. We need good people, right?" All of us desperately need God's grace in our life, moment by moment, in every situation, in all things. And when we forget that, it leads us to those type of comparisons. And so, guard your heart against gospel amnesia. Be reminded over and over of who you are and the way that God has saved you and what he's done, but then also don't fall into the distortion of grace. i starting to take that this is what I did and my things and start to think that anything good that you do is apart from God's grace in your life. But then the last thing, the third thing I would say to you, and it helps to understand, this has been so helpful for me in my life when I start to fall into comparisons. And by the way, I'm preaching this sermon to myself. As I was walking this week through my neighborhood and going over it, God's revealing things in my own heart and the way I'm comparing. Like, oh, God, forgive me. Remind me, show me. And so what was so helpful to me as I think about this in my own life, years ago, I preached through the book of Galatians. I think I was looking back, it was like 2011. So it's been a long time. But I remember very vividly preaching through the book of Galatians. And as I was going through it, I was reading John Stott's commentary on the book of Galatians, among some other things. But you get to the end of Galatians chapter five and it's verses uh, chapter five, verses 25 and 26. It says this, if we live by the spirit, let us also keep in step with the spirit. Let us not be conceited, provoking one another or envying one another. And what John Stott said in his commentary is he said, when we're not walking by the spirit, we become conceited. We make it all about me and who I am. And then we begin to provoke and envy. Provoking is looking down on people, and envy is looking up at other people. I wish I could be like that person. Provoking is looking down. I'm glad I'm not like that person. And he says, that happens when you stop walking by the Spirit. You become conceited. And what he said, and this is what stuck with me so greatly, is I can see when I'm walking by the flesh and when I'm walking by the Spirit and the way I'm making comparisons. And when I start to compare and I start to go, oh, I'm glad I'm not, that's my flesh. That's not walking by the Spirit. I'm not following the things that God has shown us of who He is and the way He saved us and what that looks like. And I fall into those comparisons and then quickly behind that comes self-justifying. And I'm doing pretty good and look at me. And all these things, I become conceited. And it's been such a helpful thing in my life when I catch myself comparing myself to another person and then all of a sudden the Spirit, God graciously reminds me and goes, hey, You don't have to do that. Yes. Thank you, God, for showing me that. Thank you for reminding me of what is true about me in you. And so I want you to really think about this. When we start to talk about comparisons and operating in those ways and doing that, I don't think you can be holding fully to the gospel and operating in those comparisons at the same time without some sort of cognitive dissonance. You're holding two things that are contrary at the same time, time and trying to do both. Think of it as like you're trying to carry a great big thing, right? And as soon as you start comparing, you're carrying that thing and it's consuming you and who you are. And until you lay that down, can you see the truth? And I think that's what happens a lot of the times. We end up making those comparisons. And so we say things like, I'm saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, right? Right? but I'm sure glad I'm not that bad. That's that's no longer by grace. It's no longer Christ alone. My identity is suddenly shifting from who I am to Jesus to who I am compared to that person. And that's a lie. And it's so easy for us to slip into that over and over. And so here you have this guy, Simon, that's living in that. And Jesus tells this story and he kind of brings out the heart that's under it. But he also shows us how he delivers us from that. And so look at what he says at the end, right? He says, Simon, I came in and you ignored me. You didn't do these things, right? By the way, it helps make sense out of this if you you hear his words here, right? He says, then turning to the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint me with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. All those things that were kind of customary, if Simon was making it not conceited and not having comparisons, he would have done for Jesus, but he didn't. And he says, but she did. And she did these things. And then he gets to the end and look at what he says. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And I want you to think about what happens there. What he's saying to her. This is a woman that her whole life is comparisons. Right? I mean, think about the way her life was. That she walks in there and the religious leaders go, oh, there's that woman. There's that woman of the city who is the sinner. How dare he spend time with a sinner? And Jesus sees her. And looks at her and understands the way she is seeking him. She came into that party because she knew Jesus was there. She fell at his feet. She kissed his feet and she loved him. And he turns and looks at her and says, your sins are forgiven. He looked at her and said, people are still going to make comparisons of you in your life. But you look at me. You identify yourself in me and who I am and what I have done for you. And he sets her on a course of her life that's totally different. And I'm sure she went back to it. I'm sure there were times when she went back to making those comparisons. But I'm willing to bet that the times that she did, Jesus turning and saying, your sins are forgiven. I see you. And I know who you are. And I understand how you're approaching me. And see, the truth is, that's the way you and I are, are, are move out of those comparisons. The way we're freed from living like that. We're just like that woman. Whether or not our sins look just like hers or differently, we're all just like her. But Jesus says, come to me, all you who are heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. I will forgive you. I will meet you in the midst of it. And here's the way you lay down the comparisons. You see that your identity is in Jesus and nothing else. That it's all because of what he has done and nothing else. And when you want to compare yourself, you be reminded that Jesus says you're mine. And I love you. And I've got you in the midst of what you're going through. And you put your faith and your trust and your identity completely and totally in Him. And it's the only way that we ever get freed from that. And so if you're struggling with that, if you're struggling with comparisons in your life, look to Jesus. What He says matters more than anything else. In fact, what He says matters is the only thing that matters. And He calls you to Himself. Now, the truth is for each and every one of us, we forget this. We forget this all the time. We slip back into comparisons. And so I just want to remind you, that's true of all of us at different times. Every single one of us. We all do that and slip back. And so that's why we desperately need community. We need other brothers and sisters in the faith walking with us, reminding us of who we are in Jesus. And when we start to slip into those type of things and we start to talk that way and we start to make comparisons and we grab one another and go, God loves you completely and totally and fully in Jesus right now. And you can rest in that. And we need to be reminded of that over and over and over again. And as we do, we get set free and we start to see it more fully and more completely and we can rest. And that's a proper, that's a, a process. It doesn't just all happen at once. But in doing the things that God calls us to, he meets us in the middle of that and continues to bring us more fully into our understanding of who he is and what he's done for us. And that is the answer. Rooting and grounding your identity in Jesus and nothing else. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for the glorious good news of what you've done for us. I thank you that you've preserved these snapshots for us of the way you moved through the earth how you saw people and in these situations, how you show us perfectly what it looks like to love you and to love others. Give us eyes to see people the way that you see them. Lord, give us eyes to see ourselves the way that you see us. What you say is true about us. Give us the rest that comes from understanding that we are yours. I pray that that would be true of every single person in this room. Would you show them afresh today the ways that you love them, the ways that you are working in their life? And we pray all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.